Hello and welcome to this special podcast from Ossert's 2014 conference on the Gold Coast. I'm Patrick Gray. Big thanks to our sponsors, FireEye, Arbor Networks and Datacom TSS for making this podcast series possible. Uh, you're about to hear a recording of Ed Felton's plenary session from day one of Ossert 2014. Uh, Edward Felton is a professor of computer science and public affairs at Princeton Center for Information Technology Policy. From 2011 to 2012, he was the first chief technologist for the Federal Trade Commission in the United States, the FTC. He's a very well-known and highly regarded researcher and academic, and uh, he spoke at OSCERT on security in a surveilled world. Here he is. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'd like to start where every single security talk starts, and that is with uh, the leaks by Edward Snowden and the, the fallout from all of that. Uh, starting about a year ago and continuing up until today with, uh, with, fresh, with fresh leaks, uh, we've learned a lot about things that were going on that we may have suspected but didn't know in detail about. That is the U.S. National Security Agency um, collecting a large amount of information. And not just, of course, the U.S. government. Our friends in Australia are also involved in this. Uh, this uh, NSA list of, um, of cooperating countries includes at the top of the comprehensive cooperation list Australia. So this is not something that, of course, is limited to the U.S. Uh, this is, involves cooperation among the so-called Five Eyes countries, uh, and you'll see which one is at the top of this graph. There's also a Nine Eyes group and a Fourteen Eyes group. Uh, these are countries that cooperate in order to build um, surveillance and data collection and exploitation systems. So what do we know about these activities? What we know is several things. First of all, we know that it stems from a general attitude of trying to collect it all, know it all, sniff it all, partner it all, exploit it all, and process it all. Uh, literally, the idea is to collect as much information as possible, that as, as legally and technically possible, uh, and then to, to use it for, uh, for real or perceived intelligence and law enforcement advantage. Uh, we know that we see pervasive attacks, which are both active and passive. We know that we uh, see efforts to exploit systems. Uh, we know that uh, we see efforts to build back doors into systems, to build back doors into standards. Uh, and we know that we see tampering with, uh, with equipment as it's shipped um, across borders in order to, uh, in order to implant uh, information, uh, in order to implant uh, uh, components that will exfiltrate information. We know as well that these efforts build on commercial collection of data, both by, uh, uh, both by uh, receiving data directly by request from companies that have collected it, uh, and the NSA talks about more than 80 commercial partners. One wonders how many of those partners are, uh, are willing partners, but nonetheless um, at least 80 commercial partners, as well as capture of information um, off the wire, such as the use of commercial tracking cookies and the collection of tracking cookie information in order to localize and link together users' activities. So in light of all of this, in light of now knowing that this is happening and that it's happening as aggressively as it is, uh, we need to think about how to change our threat model in security in order to deal with the reality that we're in. Uh, and, and this involves not just um, uh, thinking about to what extent we want to treat intelligence services as adversaries, but it also involves thinking about the atmosphere of pervasive insecurity that, is, uh, that goes along with this. Uh, 
if we were paying attention, we would really never have believed that we were highly secure and that everything was well, that vulnerabilities were rare. Uh, we know that, um, uh, that defending computer systems is a very difficult thing. But what we've learned, or at least come to appreciate more, I think, over the last year, is that it's in the interest of uh, those who would like to surveil or collect information uh, to see an atmosphere of pervasive insecurity. Uh, Felix showed data before about the drying up of the flow of public information about vulnerabilities and how that is linked, um, uh, how that may be linked to the market in vulnerability information. Um, all of this uh, leads to an environment in which uh, pervasive insecurity and the knowledge of pervasive insecurity is part of what we need to deal with. And so the question that's before us, I think, as security professionals, as those of us interested in protecting systems, is what path we should take. We have some difficult decisions about which way to go. How can we defend ourselves in this world? First of all, how to defend ourselves against an adversary who either is all-powerful, seems to be all-powerful, or at least has capabilities that we cannot fully understand or, or characterize. Um, and second, how to defend against this environment of pervasive insecurity. How is it that we can think about defending our systems in this world? Now before talking about that, um, I should stop and talk about the, uh, the point of view of those, of, of those who are collecting this information. Uh, certainly, uh, the, uh, uh, many of the people, most of the people involved in collecting uh, information uh, see themselves as defending truth and justice. They see themselves as protecting us against those people who are out there uh, who really do exist, uh, who want to kill us and want to, uh, want to steal from us. There is, a, there is an absolutely important need to conduct surveillance against some of the entities who are out there. Um, but the key is to, is to understand how the surveillance that, and data collection that does happen can be targeted against those people who really are meaning to attack us uh, and not targeted broadly against a crowd. That is, uh, one of the key issues is how we can ensure that the surveillance that does occur occurs with a focus so that uh, it doesn't affect all of us all the time uh, but, uh, but does affect those uh, who need to be tracked those whose activities really do, uh, do need to be monitored. And so the question is, what are we going to do? Which path are we going to take? I want to talk today about five approaches to security in this world of pervasive surveillance. Uh, but first, I want to talk, as a, as a prefix, just as a reminder, of strategy number zero. And strategy number zero is simply to maintain and advance our traditional defenses. We need to keep building walls, we need to keep defending systems, we need to keep understanding uh, vulnerabilities, and we need to uh, propagate that information and build on it. Uh, that's absolutely the case. But traditional approaches to security are by themselves not enough. Uh, we need to do more things. Which brings us to strategy number one. Strategy number one is to take this notion of trust that we talk about so much seriously. Now, trust, in my view, is one of the most misused words in security. Uh, we hear it a lot, and we hear it to mean all kinds of things. Uh, we hear, for example, statements that you trust X, and by the way, you should always be worried when someone tells you who you trust. Uh, often when someone says to, to, to you that you trust some entity X, what they really mean is X can compromise you, 
and, uh, and you're not defended against that. Indeed, in the U.S. government terminology, the term trusted computer system initially meant just that a system that, um, that was in a position to compromise you, and therefore you had no choice but to trust it. Nonetheless, we hear the word trust a lot. Um, and in general, if you can't explain how your system works and why it's good without using the word trust, then, uh, then um, you might have a problem. But let me give you one example. One of the best examples of unclear thinking about trust comes from, uh, from HTTPS. So uh, you might go to, uh, uh, to the OSCERT uh, website, which, uh, good for them, uses HTTPS by default. Um, if, you click on the, uh, if you click on the lock, what you see is an explanation here of what the certificate is. Here's the OSCERT certificate, and you can choose whether to trust OSCERT or not. Presumably, if you're here at the conference and looking at their website, you do. But of course, there's this chain of certificates, which goes back to the root. And if you click on the, uh, the link at the top of this page, what you see is this, information about an entity called AdTrust, which exists in Sweden. Now, my browser tells me that I trust AdTrust. But that is, uh, as a factual matter, a false statement. I don't really know who AdTrust is. I have no particular reason to distrust them, nor do I have any particular reason to, distrust, to trust them. Uh, the fact is that when my browser tells me that I trust AdTrust, what they're really saying is that AdTrust can compromise me. That is, AdTrust is in a position where they can certify any website to me, and my browser will, on my behalf, treat that as valid. Not just OSCERT, who presumably did go to AdTrust and ask for a certificate, but any other entity that I might try to connect to, including my own employer and including, indeed, my own site. Uh, and it's not just ad trust that I trust. If you go into your browser, of course, you can see a list of all kinds of entities who you are deemed to trust. Uh, my browser tells me that I trust this entity. Uh, I'm not sure quite who this is. I know it's some sort of institution in Turkey. But as a factual matter, it's not correct to say that I trust this entity. Um, nonetheless, we find ourselves vulnerable to, uh, to our browsers trusting any certificate from a large number of entities. Given all of that, it's not too, too surprising to see the research paper that was, that was uh, released within the past few days on analyzing forged SSL certificates in the wild. And yes, there are a substantial number of these certificates that are, uh, that are forged for various reasons and that are seen in the wild. What you see in this certification, this PKI for the web, is a system that uses good crypto. It does the crypto basically correctly, but at the same time, uh, all right, basically correctly, all right? Um, by comparison, uh, what we see is horrible institution design. We see an approach that says, all right, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to make a list of the hundred or so entities that are trusted by everyone in the world. Now, if you think about that, um, uh, if you think about what that means, it's ridiculous on its face. There is no entity that's trusted by everyone in the world. There certainly are not a hundred such entities. Nonetheless, that's the basis on which this system is built. We need to do a better job of thinking about the institutions around security, or all the talk about trust will just be empty talk. So that's the first strategy. Let's think seriously about trust and in institutions. A second strategy we can follow is to force the adversary to target. That is, even if we can't defend ourselves against a, a really dedicated or, uh, or well-resourced adversary who wants, to ex who wants to observe us specifically, we can look for strategies that allow targeted access while at the same time hindering universal access. In other words, lower our sights a little bit. 
for those cases where we don't have a strong enough defense. Uh, we can try to exploit the scale problem that a pervasive all-seeing adversary has. That we as legitimate readers or receivers of information want to access a modest amount of information that we can see but an adversary wants to see everything. So one thing for example is to use methods like puzzle encryption. Um, for example, if we have some message M that we want to distribute, we can, take, we can take the message M, we can generate a random key which I'll call R, and then we can encrypt that message with the random key and distribute it along with a computational puzzle, uh, say a hash puzzle, that, uh, that can be solved to reveal R. Make a hash puzzle that takes, say, half a second of CPU time to solve, and then simply distribute that together with, uh, with the encryption. Now anyone who receives this data can devote about a half CPU second of time to solving the hash puzzle, recovering the key, and decrypting. And yet an adversary who wants to see everything needs to decrypt everyone's hash puzzles, which is going to be computationally expensive. So we can exploit the scale. Now is this as good as end-to-end -end encryption with a proper key exchange? No, it's not. But in a lot of real cases, we either can't or, let's face it, don't use end-to-end -end encryption. And so this is better. We can also do similar things with HTTP. Uh, why are intelligence agencies interested in HTTP? Well, because nearly everything a typical user does on the internet uses HTTP. Uh, and uh, this uh, NSA slide uh, indicates that they, are, uh, that they recognize that as well. So in the context of HTTP, there's a method known as opportunistic encryption, which does the same sort of thing that I talked about for regular messages. It's essentially HTTPS without authentication. Now I don't mean the use of self-signed certs that, uh, that display ugly warnings to the users that users don't understand. I simply mean uh, the, uh, the use of the key exchange method, say by a Diffie-Hellman key exchange as part of the handshake, but without any certificate being presented or without any uh, authentication of who the endpoints are. This method, if done right, is secure against a passive adversary. It's, as we know, not secure against an active adversary who can mess with the messages between the two endpoints. Um, and, so, um, uh, and, and so this gives us something of value. An adversary who's willing to actively exploit us will be able to get our traffic, but, in ad but the, it's difficult to do that at scale. So methods like this give us weak protection. They allow targeted recovery of plain text by an adversary who targets an individual connection or an individual message. Uh, and that, of course, is something that, um, is, uh, that uh, law enforcement and intelligence agencies will legitimately do. Uh, but nonetheless, these don't provide strong protection against an adversary who's deliberately targeting us. So if we do these things, we should make no promises to the user. We should not tell the user that we're providing any encryption or any protection. We should simply uh, do this as a matter of course silently so that we can provide a little bit of resistance against, uh, against non-targeted interception and, uh, and analysis. So that's strategy number two, to try to force the adversary to target. Not the best solution, not, end, not an end-to-end -end solution, but nonetheless in practice we rarely use end-to-end -end encryption and this would be better. Strategy number three is to talk about the methods that intelligence and law enforcement agencies themselves use and to try to improve those systems so that they are better, more protective of civil liberties and more protective of privacy. 
Uh, and so the example of that I want to talk about comes from a report in the U.S., of the, the report of the President's Review Group on Intelligence and Communications Technologies. This was released in mid-December of 2013, uh, and this was a, a group that was appointed by the President to look at NSA activities and talk about uh, their, their value, um, the risks that they raise, and what might be changed. One of the recommendations of this group, and this is very wordy, but I'll summarize it for you, is that legislation should be enacted that terminates the storage of bulk telephony metadata by the government and moves the storage of that information outside the government while continuing some amount of access. And the president, in his speech on January 17th in front of many flags, um, talked about, uh, endorsed this, and ordered the intelligence community and the attorney general to develop options for doing this. So let's talk about some of the technical trade-offs here. So this is basically the system with, uh, that we're talking about here. On the left-hand side, we have, um, uh, we have a large uh, store of data that is held by the intelligence, uh, by the NSA, uh, data about uh, domestic and international phone calls. In the middle, we have a computing capability which uses this database to do various forms of analysis. And over on the right, we have an analyst who is asking questions about the data, uh, we hope pursuant to legal authority. Um, and all of this is within the NSA in this gray box. And so what the president suggested initially is to move the blue box outside of, of the government. That is to take the blue box and put it inside of some, uh, some data custodian. One might ask how much value this provides. I'll come back to this later. Um, there is, a, I think, relatively little value provided by moving this data into a simple data custodian. Uh, on, on, uh, but this is still one of the uh, things that was suggested. We, of course, as computer scientists, ask not just where is the data, but where does the computation occur. We might indeed move the computation as well outside of government. Um, but, but the other approach which was suggested by the review committee and endorsed by the president as a possibility is to instead leave the data in the hands of the telecom providers rather than turning it over to government at all. Uh, now, of course, this is still in a setting of legal authority where the uh, intelligence agencies have, uh, at least thus far, as the courts have found, authority to get this data. Uh, and so we're not talking about cutting off access to this data. We're simply talking about how it should be stored and what controls might be put in place. And so there's been a suggestion of, um, of, of holding this data outside of government in the telecom providers and having some kind of query interface that would be used to get access to just that data needed to, uh, to perform a query. And of course, we could take also some or all of the computing capability and move it outside of government. Uh, now, as soon as you move this data out to the telecom providers, you get to issues about data retention. I'm going to set that aside today. Right now, there's no requirement to retain the data in the US, and there would be strong political pushback against such a requirement. Um, one of the advantages, potentially, from a public standpoint, of having this data in the telecom providers is that we have better visibility to and better ability of the public to influence these providers in terms of how long they keep this data. But I want to look at this as a computer science problem and as a problem of how, to, how one should design a distributed system in order to carry out this system in, uh, in this function in the best possible way, given that it is apparently going to be carried out. So if in doing this, we, want to, we would optimize for all the things that computer scientists like to optimize for, performance, cost, reliability, and so on. But we also want to optimize for oversight. That is, we want to design the system in such a way that it best enables those entities, either executive 
um, legislative or judicial that are supposed to oversee this process to monitor it and, um, and put controls on it. We want to um, optimize their ability to operate, their visibility into what's happening. And so with this in mind, we would come up with some design principles to try to choose between these architectures in the way that best serves the public interest and civil liberties. Uh, and, I would and I would suggest several design principles here. One is to avoid replication of data. The more places that data is stored, the more opportunity there is uh, for it to leak, the more opportunity there is for abuse. Second, to avoid aggregation of data. Rather than putting all the data together in one place, we'd like to spread it out, have it be under separate administrative control. Uh, the, uh, this, uh, uh, this then re would require that any kind of broad abuse requires a larger conspiracy and requires more activity across administrative boundaries. We should consider both the storage of data and the processing of it. Politicians tend to ignore processing. We should design for accountability. And finally, we should be willing to use advanced computer science methods in this. So on this basis, based on these design principles, this architecture is the best. Um, it avoids replication of data. The data is held only within the telecoms. It avoids aggregation of data rather than bringing the data together. The data is held in the telecoms where it would already be held for business purposes. Um, and um, a lot of the activities that go on in this system cross administrative boundaries, and therefore there are more opportunities for logging, more opportunities for oversight. Um, so uh, this would be best from a civil liberty standpoint if it's possible to actually carry out the functions that the uh, agencies would like to carry out um, on this data. Okay, so uh, what computations do they do, they do on the call data? Um, by looking at the documents that have been released, the documents that have been leaked, and by reading between the lines a little bit, we can find two functions that uh, they're carrying out on this data. The first one is so-called contact chaining, that is looking at uh, look, building a graph of who calls whom, who talks to whom, and then using that uh, to, uh, uh, to try to make inferences about who might be uh, worthy of investigation. And the second method, well, that is redacted in all the documents. In the declassified court opinions about this, uh, these, about this program, uh, we see a discussion of contact chaining. We then see about two-thirds of a page of, of, of redacted text. So we know that there is some second um, type of analysis that's going on, but we don't know exactly what it is because everything is redacted. We can speculate, we can make inferences, and I'll do that in a minute. Um, but, uh, but there is some lack of information here. So can they do these functions, these two, these two functions on the, uh, in the distributed architecture that I talked about? Well, contact chaining, contact chaining amounts to a form of breadth-first search, and we know it's, it's pretty simple to show that breadth-first search can be done efficiently. Um, it requires, uh, to go to depth two requires only two queries to each telecom provider. That's quite efficient. That's the easy case. The hard case, well, this algorithm is more difficult to analyze. Okay, so what do we know about this? Well, we know, uh, we know a few things. We think, based on the documents that are available to us, that whatever this is um, uh, may be structured in a MapReduce form. We know that this data is held in a system called a Cumulo, which is uh, a sort of specialized for intelligence form of, of Hadoop. Um, it's a, it's a MapReduce system, and that means it's likely that whatever the analysis is, it can be coded efficiently within a MapReduce architecture. A MapReduce architecture is one that takes every item of data and the map step applies a simple computation to each item. And then the reduce step takes the results of those and combines them um, in a sort of fan-in fashion to get to a final result. 
Now the good news about a MapReduce computation is that it will still be efficient when the data is split across um, telecom providers. MapReduce architectures are in fact uh, the, the uh, are are in fact designed the way they are precisely because you want to stripe the data across a large number of servers. And so uh, assuming that this is a MapReduce computation, it will be still efficient uh, in a distributed environment. And interestingly, even without knowing perhaps what the algorithm is, we can, uh, we can talk about how to do it efficiently. It may also be that, that some other algorithms such as similarity search is what they're doing that is given uh, the, the calling pattern of a particular number that is known or believed to be associated with, uh, with um, uh, illegal activity to look for some second number that has a very similar calling pattern to the known bad one. Uh, if similarity search is what's going on, we know specific algorithms for doing that efficiently as well. Okay, so there's reason to believe that it's possible to uh, change the algorithm, change the storage of this data in a way that is more conducive to the protection of civil liberties and privacy and puts more control in the hands of non-government entities. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and if we can do that, we should be doing that. And there may be steps going on in the U.S. to move at least this NSA program in this direction. So the lesson from this is that there is some hope of improving agencies' systems in order to make them better from a public uh, interest standpoint, even if uh, we are unable to reduce the, uh, uh, the, the uh, degree of collection and access. Okay. Strategy number four is to try to work on coming up with new protocols for accountability. This is really about changing the debate around these systems. A debate which says we're a, a debate which traditionally has said we're talking about security and privacy, or more often how to trade security in the sense of national security, again, off against privacy. Uh, we want to add a third component to this discussion, and that is accountability. We want to talk about how to take these systems and implement them in a way that is more accountable, more accountable and more transparent, even while protecting those aspects of the intelligence and law enforcement process that need to be kept secret. So one example of this is a simple warrant for access to data. The scenario is a telecom or a data provider has some data. An intelligence agency or law enforcement agency gets a warrant or a court order for access to that data, which they then bring to the telecom or provider, and that data is then turned over. Um, and, and there's been work on how to implement this simple warrant system in a way that's more accountable. Uh, the first version of this uh, for supporting simple warrants uh, came from Seni Kamara at Microsoft Research in a blog post last summer. Uh, and he talked about a method that relies on a kind of search on encrypted data. So the algorithm worked, his algorithm works like this. The first thing that happens is the telecom encrypts each record with a random encryption key, a random symmetric key, and then they send the encrypted database over to the agency, who I'll call the NSA here. Now, when the, in step two, when a court issues a warrant or a court order, the court cryptographically commits to that warrant, and they publish an opaque sealed commitment to the warrant. That, that sealed warrant can be unwrapped later in case of a dispute. They then send to the NSA, to the agency, the secret key that can unlock that commitment. And now in step three, you get out the giant cryptographic hammer, and that is secure multi-party computation, a mechanism that allows multiple entities to work together and uh, implement a, a function in a way that's opaque to both, so that they both put in their inputs, um, a bunch of fancy crypto stuff happens, and out at the bottom comes an output to each one, with neither entity learning any more than their output. 
And so here, the telecom and the NSA would use secure multi-party computation to do several things simultaneously. First, to verify that the warrant that was committed to uh, matches the requested account ID that the agency is actually asking for. Second, to calculate the decryption key that would be necessary to decrypt just that requested account ID, which you know from step one uh, corresponds to the warrant, and then finally give that key to the agency. The agency then in step four can decrypt the record of the requested account. So the properties that you get from this uh, are more or less the properties you want from a warrant protocol. You get that the agency gets only the data that they have a warrant for. You get that the court has to commit to a warrant in a way that can be audited or checked later. And you get that the agency doesn't need to tip its hand to the telecom or anyone else about which account they're accessing. So this is all very good, but, uh, but it could be improved. And uh, my student Josh Kroll and uh, Dan Bonet and I have a paper that talks about a whole bunch of ways to improve this. You can improve it by making it more robust against a crypto break. Step one is not ideal. You take all of the data and you encrypt it, and then you give it to the people who are the best people in the world at breaking encryption. Uh, if they're able to defeat that crypto algorithm, then you're in a world of hurt. Uh, and so uh, you can improve this method by making it more robust against crypto breaks. You can reduce the number of long-term secrets that parties have to hold because we know it's difficult to hold the long-term long secrets securely. You can eliminate the secure multi-party computation and replace it with a smaller cryptographic hammer with, and therefore reduce complexity. All of those things are possible. And all of this is feasible at scale. To uh, process one day's data for the entire US telecom system requires about 820 core hours. Um, that is one rack of machines can do it uh, uh, in a few minutes. So there are a lot of research opportunities here actually in looking at the kinds of protocols and interactions that go on in this environment and try to make them more accountable as Kamara's algorithm um, and our follow-on work did by making the warrant process more accountable um, and uh, by, uh, by making it auditable and by reducing the flows of information down to those that were truly needed by using some advanced computer science methods. Lots of research opportunities here in coming up with new protocols for accountability. Finally, strategy number five, and perhaps the one that is most critical, is public engagement. Um, by all of us. And that means more than just getting up in front of a like-minded audience and talking about how we need to change things. That means going and talking to people in government. That means putting on a suit, and it means meeting with lawmakers, meeting with regulators, meeting with agencies, and actually doing the work of trying to build a political support and make sure that what we know gets incorporated into the process. And I, will, and I want to argue to you that the opportunity to do this is starting to open. But I want to start with um, a sort of depressing view of some attitudes in the intelligence community historically. Um, and for this, I want to start with this column in the Washington Post back in December by Walter Pincus. Now, Walter Pincus is a very experienced uh, reporter in the US on issues of national security and intelligence. And in this column, he was summarizing the views of what he said were many people in the US intelligence community. And he starts out by saying this. Should the United States engage in secret, covert, or clandestine activity if the American public cannot be convinced of the necessity and wisdom of such activities, should they be leaked or disclosed? To intelligence professionals, by which I think he meant many intelligence professionals, that's a bizarre question. Now, there are a lot of things you can say about that question. You can say it's an important question. You can say it's an interesting question. You can maybe even say it's a difficult question, but to say the question is bizarre, to suggest that it's an error even to ask it, 
um, is to me very worrisome. And the idea that the people who are supposedly acting on our behalf um, in order to protect us um, are thinking of things this way, um, I find that very worrisome. Because this is not a bizarre question. It's one of the central questions of national security policy. Nonetheless, to many people, according to Walter Pincus in the intelligence community, that was a bizarre question. He goes on to elaborate. The prime reason for secrecy is that you don't want the targets to know what you're doing. And that, of course, um, is easy to agree with. Um, the, the main reason, the legitimate reason for secrecy in intelligence activities and law enforcement activities is that the bad guys um, uh, will try to learn from um, leaks of information, learn what they, what they can, and might be able to evade the legitimate activities by learning this. So the prime reason, the legitimate reason for secrecy is keeping the legitimate targets from knowing what you're doing. But he goes on, often in democracies, another reason is that you don't want your citizens to know what their government is doing on their behalf to keep them secure as long as it's within their country's law. Uh, and this, I think, is, um, again, uh, a very scary thing to hear uh, as being a widespread opinion uh, within parts of the intelligence community. Because this is not the way that we should, in a democracy, be thinking about public policy. It's critical that in those cases where there's not a legitimate reason having to do with keeping the targets from knowing what we're doing, where there's not that reason, it's critical that this information be made available to us. Now this idea of being in control and not wanting to talk to the public leaks out in some of the, uh, the leaked documents. Here's a slide that was, an NSA slide that was leaked just yesterday putting money, national interest, and ego together, and now you're talking about shaping the world writ large. And which country doesn't want to do that? Uh, that's the attitude of uh, taking control uh, away from the public and putting control into the hands of intelligence agencies to decide what the public policy should be in, that step, in, uh, in this space. Now, uh, the good news is that attitudes are starting to change. Uh, and in this regard, I want to talk about an interview with James Clapper, who's, who uh, has been the uh, director of national intelligence in the U.S. Um, and in an interview uh, recently, uh, Mr. Clapper said the following. Uh, he said, I probably shouldn't say this, but I will. And by the way, that's the preface to uh, an interesting true statement by a political person. I probably shouldn't say this, but I will. Um, he, here's what he said. Had we been transparent about this from the outset, right after 9-11, and said, both to the American people and to their elected representatives, we need to cover this gap, we need to make sure this never happens to us again. So here is, where, here is what we're going to set up, here is how it's going to work, and why we have to do it, and here are the safeguards. If we had done that, Mr. Clapper says, we wouldn't have had the problem we had. Uh, that, I think, is correct. Had we had this discussion about what our policy should be, and had we had this discussion right away, starting after 9-11 and continuously up to now, we would be in a very different situation. We would have a situation with better dialogue between the technical community, between citizens and governments and intelligence agencies, and we would have public policies that better uh, reconcile the legitimate needs for security against uh, the public interest in privacy and civil liberties. Uh, and it's, a, it's, to me, a very encouraging sign that people like Mr. P Mr. Clapper, who has really been a hardliner on, on some of these issues, uh, is saying this. This is the window that's opening for us as security professionals and as citizens. The window is opening, and we have the opportunity to participate in these discussions. 
We need to take our expertise, we need to take our passion, and we need to be prepared to work in a constructive way with the political leadership and with intelligence agencies to try to move things forward, to try to recognize what's legitimate about what they're doing, and at the same time to recognize the very important public interests that we're speaking for, and find a way to put on a suit, put on a tie, go to your capital and talk to people, and try to really get to work on solving these problems. Um, if we can do that, um, then I think we can really make steps forward on these issues. Thank you. Thank you.